Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with acclaimed American writer George Saunders on Books, Books, Books about his most recent book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four dead Russians give us a masterclass in writing and in life. And that's published here in Australia by Bloomsbury. George's first degree was in geophysical engineering. He then completed his MA in creative writing at Syracuse University, New York. George is an acclaimed writer of short stories who has written 11 books. His first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. He has won many other prizes and fellowships for his writing, and his stories have appeared in The New Yorker since 1992. George is a professor at Syracuse University in the Creative Writing Program, where he has been teaching the Russian short story for 20 years. In 2013, Time magazine named him as one of the world's 100 most influential people, and he has been described as one of the most audacious and inventive voices in American literature. George, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for joining us. So nice to be here, Nicole. George, your first degree was in geophysical engineering, and you have said that when I was in engineering school, I wasn't an engineer, but a writer waiting to happen. When did you first realise that you wanted to be a writer and not an engineer? Well, I think it was, I, I think all the signs were there in, when I was an undergraduate uh, university studying engineering, but I didn't, I, I was um, a little bit working class and I didn't really know how one went about being a writer. I didn't, I didn't know any writers. So I kind of kept it a little bit of a secret and it was a, really the one thing I was passionate about. Uh, so then I took a job in Asia and was over there working as an engineer, but more and more reading and writing were starting to take over. And then as I saw how sort of incompetent I was as an engineer, it became kind of a, uh, imperative that I, that I move in that direction. But, uh, you know, all along I was writing a little on the side, reading a little bit. And then finally, uh, I got sick over in Asia and came home and then I was kind of without a job and, uh, one of those little moments of crisis. And I thought, okay, this is obviously a maybe a sign from the universe that I should, you know, focus on the thing that I really love. You've published four books of short stories. And I was wondering, before we start to talk about these greats of the uh, the Russian writers of the 19th century, what is it that you like the most about writing short stories about that form as opposed to, for example, the novel? Well, I mean, the truthful answer, it just is, um, it comes to me more naturally. I, I, I wrote a couple novels when I was younger that were just big messes, you know, and that I ended up abandoning. Uh, partly because I, when, when I'm writing in that long form, I, I get lost easily. I, I don't quite know what the, um, what the job is. You know, it's almost like if you, uh, were playing a video game, but you couldn't figure out the rules. So you, you know, you could play with some good energy, but you aren't playing with much pleasure. Uh, with a story, I think maybe because of its relation to the joke or maybe, uh, to the sort of, um, comic sketch, which, you know, I grew up on Saturday Night Live and Steve Martin and all that and Monty Python, um, 
I, I understand if something has a clock ticking within it, you know, if you're supposed to get in and get out fast, um, then I kind of understand it. I think it says something about the necessary qualities of the piece if you've only got eight pages to do it. Uh, also, I think it allows you more attempts for one thing. And also, I noticed that my the story form really jibes with my feeling about the world. Like, I don't really see my life as a long uh, narrative full of philosophical insights. You know, it's not, it hasn't been novelistic. It's been more fragmented. There have been little moments of truth that were then contradicted by other moments of truth. And the whole thing got, you know, pushed aside by some uh, freak incident or something. So the, the world presents to me more as, as a series of short stories, I think. For the last 20 years, as I mentioned at Syracuse University, you've been teaching this course to our MFA students in the 19th century Russian short story and translation. And that's what this wonderful book is about. You know, it's a, a masterclass in a sense, um, I guess, in a way similar to that which you deliver to those lucky students. When were you first introduced to the short stories of Russian greats such as Tolstoy, Chekhov and Gogol? And what impact did they have on you when you first read them? The, the earliest memory I have of uh, a Russian short story is uh, when I came to Syracuse as a graduate student, I was probably about 26 or 27, and I'd never heard a, a reading before, you know, a public reading. And our teacher, Tobias Wolf, who's a great short story master, uh, I described this in the book, he, he read Chekhov to us. He read this thing called The Little Trilogy. Uh, and it was just, I, I can't really describe it. I, I, I'd never been so entertained in the fullest sense of the word i was you know captivated we were laughing we were crying uh i was jealous you know of this whoever this Chekhov guy was who seemed to understand and love people so well and so it, it was a night where i finally just thought okay yes the short story is my vocation i you know i in my life i'd wanted to be a comic i'd wanted to be a baseball player i'd wanted to be a songwriter and that night everything else fell away and i'm like this this form can contain everything in the world all the beauty all the the danger and the laughs and all that. So that was a big night. And it was just Toby, you know, he's such a great reader and he read it with such confidence and it was almost like Chekhov was there with us. Uh, so that was, that was the moment when I, the story loomed large for me. And ever after that, I would always turn to the Russians to try to, I guess, recreate that, that feeling of dedication. And that was when you were a student in the uh, MA program, is that right? In your late twenties? Right. Right. George, you say that that they showed you, these Russian short stories showed you that fiction could be a moral, ethical tool that changed you when you read it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, as a, as a young a working class kid, I, I was a good reader and I read a lot, but I was always reading f basically for advice, you know, how should we live? Uh, I, I had the feeling that I was missing something in my psychological makeup, um, I could see, you know, on the south side of Chicago where I lived, all kinds of people whose, for whatever reason, their lives had become difficult. That, you know, they had maybe, I don't know, some had married too early, some had married the wrong people, some had the wrong jobs, some people were just unhappy. And it's, life seemed to me like something perilous, you know, it seemed that you could be plucked off young and, and stuck in, in uh, um, a life that you didn't really want. So I was, I was a little bit, um, I guess I was a young old man. You know, I was very cautious. I wanted to know wh what was going on. So I just was um, kind of floundering around in books, trying to find someone who could advise me, basically, or tell me what the meaning of life was. Uh, and so, so fiction never interested me except as that, you know, except as uh, one person uh, stepping out in the world almost as if he was a god saying, okay, here's how I read this world.
here's what I think is going on here. And in, um, so that was my understanding of what fiction was. So Steinbeck was an early writer who really spoke to me because he seemed to have a, a comprehensive view of humanity and how we should behave. Hemingway, of course. Uh, but I didn't really, that was the only way, if you had asked me this question at 23, I would have said, well, yeah, but you know, what, what else is there? Why, why else would we read stories? George, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is it that makes the Russian short stories unique, these Russian short stories of the 19th century. What is it that makes them different? For example, you have great American writers who've written short stories, some of them you've mentioned. What is it that makes the 19th century Russian short stories so unique and so special? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I have a feeling that it was um, a time when the form was finding itself. It, it didn't really... Uh, it hadn't become standardized yet, so anything went. Uh, also, I think there was something in the in the Russian sensibility of that time that understood fiction the way I've just mentioned it as something a tool, a, a tool, uh, maybe a tool for change, maybe a tool for protest, certainly a tool for greater engagement in, in the world. So they 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 had no uh, it seems question about what stories were for. They were for uh, moral ethical examination. And for my purposes as a teacher, these stories are great because they're pretty simple, really. You know, they're not all cluttered up with contemporary technology or ideas or or um, sort of the nascent politics of the moment. They're quite clean. You know, it's like samovars and snowstorms and, you know, uh, simple. So then the contemporary, uh, the young writer can look at these and kind of in a way, the first move is to kind of scoff at them like, oh, how quaint. You know, they're, 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 they're sort of old-fashioned diction. They don't have cell phones, ha, ha, ha. But then that allows you to cut through a lot of the clutter and get right to the, you know, the, um, the moment when someone is trying not to die or the moment when someone is faced with a really complicated moral decision. So it's in some ways, in the book I say it's a bit like reading, like a composer studying Bach. You know, you don't have to worry so much about instrumentation. Uh, it's all just very simple uh, mechanics of the form stuff. You talk in the book about getting to the heart of the story. What what do you mean by that? What is what's the heart? What's the essence of a short story? Is it is it its theme? Is it its denouement? Yeah. Well, here here we I have to confess it, and I and I do it in the book. This is just my way of looking at it. And I think you know one of the things I emphasize to my students is there really isn't a corpus of knowledge about the short story that you have to memorize and enact. It's it is it doesn't work that way. Um, the minute you you know quote unquote know what is how a story works you're probably done being a writer because part of the game is to go in not sure uh, almost like a doctor you don't really want to be too sure before you open the patient up what's going on you know you want to stay open so but having said that for me um, I here's how I read a story I, I I'm reading it and I'm aware that the writer is taking up part of my life you know and I I sort of find myself asking a question that's in one of the Dr. Seuss books. Why are you bothering telling me this? You know, wh what are we doing here? Um, I would say that the writer knows that you're asking that question and she starts giving you little hints. The heart of the story, I think, is this. When you get to the end of it, you go, aha, that's what that was for. Th this, you know, this is the moment that justified that story's existence. Or uh, and it sometimes can be the climactic moment, but sometimes it can be something else. So in the same way that with a joke, you know, if I say, a duck walks into a bar. You know why I'm telling you this. It's because a couple minutes from now we're going to get to the punchline. And so, so I think the story for me, the story works in a similar, of course, much more complicated way. But if we keep our mind on the question, why are you telling me this, or what is the heart of the story, then it refracts um, meaning on every single other element of the story. 
if those minor elements, even micro elements, are later seen to be somehow contributory to the heart of the story, then we get that little pop of satisfaction that comes when we regard a beautifully made aesthetic object. If not, it's a little baggy, you know, and we go, yeah, that's kind of good. Um, so that's, anyway, that's my operating theory. Now, of course, you can't really, if you try to enact that literally, you drive yourself insane, but it's a good guiding principle. You know, when I'm getting laid in the game with my stories, I look at something and go, hi, can you tell me why you're here? Just gently, you know, please, please tell me if you're, I'd like you to stay, but if you can make a slightly better case for your presence, I would appreciate it. And sometimes the part, you know, (laughs) responds and sometimes it doesn't. Many, many students apply to do this course with you. You said six or 700 of them and out of them, you, you only select six or seven. You say that many of them have already and have to be good writers to have got this far. But your aim is to help them to find their iconic space. What do you mean by that? And how does a study of the Russian short stories help them to do that? Sure. So, yeah, so these kids are, I mean, even the 600 who apply are a fairly self-selected group already to apply to an MFA program. So these are the six. And and I wish you could sit with me and read these manuscripts because even the top 30 are incredible. They're so great. Then we have to cut down, down, down. Um, So those six students have always been the best writer in every class they've been in. They, uh, they can imitate anybody. They've read so widely. They show up, and now there's this big gulf between them and the world of publishing, and we hope we can help them, you know, pull vault over into the other side. But that's really tricky, I would say almost psychological work, because, as I say, they're all great achievers. They, they can do anything. Now, of all the voices you could do, which one is the one that only you can do? You know, of all the material you could write about, What's the thing that is going to let you be most defiantly yourself? And of course, we don't know. They don't know. And so it's very much like, you know, feeling around in the dark. And the way you do that is by reading their work and editing it mostly. The the Russian class, um, for me, is kind of like a chance to step out of one's own work a little bit and say, okay, we're going to read these works. I, George, say that these are great. You may not agree, dear student, but let's pretend they're great. Let's see if we can have a develop a better understanding of what greatness might mean by uh, assuming these are great and uh, analyzing them. And then there's a kind of a mystery quotient, which is, I don't really know why that should help you. I, I, I can't really articulate why analyzing a Chekhov story should help you, Nicole, in your work. But we we are betting on the fact that it will. I'm I'm actually positive it will. I can't prove it. But the idea is we're going to go into these stories in an analytical mode, immerse ourselves in them, and then just trust that our our capacity for beauty has been increased somehow just by that exchange. In the same way that a songwriter, you know, hearing Gershwin being transported would then want to go and learn the chord changes. You know, she might not use those same chord changes, but just the immersion is really important. So that's what we do. And, um, I think it does work. You see, you know, if nothing else, we come out of a good class and everybody in the class is kind of awash in wonder at what Tolstoy did. Uh, if nothing else, it just makes you recommit to the form and think, Oh, please God, let me someday do something like that. Which then, you know, that in my case, that transmits into patience, artistic patience, because you want it so much that you will do that extra 15 drafts or whatever. So it does work. I'm not quite sure how, <laughs> but it's, in any way, it's fun. George, you've been teaching these stories for 20 years and you've now spent it 
significant amount of time writing this book and, and writing the essays. That So I, I should explain to listeners the way that George's book reads is he provides each of seven of seven short stories by four of the great Russian writers. There's a couple by Chekhov and by Tolstoy. And then he gives an essay in which he analyzes each of those short stories. So I'm wondering, you've been teaching these year after year always to exceptional students who are exceptional and exceptional writers. Do you learn something new each time you teach them and each time you discuss them with a different group of bright young writers? Every time. And even now, you know, it's really been great is since the book came out, I'm getting emails at my Syracuse account from readers and I'm still learning. People, people will say, oh, here, have you thought of this? And I'm like, I did not think of that. So, so absolutely. And, you know, also these stories are so good that they, sh- they change with you, with the reader. You know, you, you read these as a 25-year-old. They're speaking in a certain voice. And now and I'm 62. There's just so much wisdom in these that I missed, you know, the other times. And then, as you suggest, the process of writing the essays is really big. I used to teach, you know, I, I have notes. And with these kind of students, you don't have to do much. You just say, hey, look at this page. You know, what do you think? Uh, or I might have some idea of something I want them to notice. But then to take it the next step and try to articulate that for a stranger is really was really hard and wonderful, you know, to, to, to find out, for example, that I've been under teaching these stories all all those years. Um, so I, I, I just as a, uh, a a craft experience for myself, it was so valuable. And I'm writing more than I ever did, and my teaching last semester seems to have really improved. And so I think the, uh, you know, in so many things in life, the the process of going up against something with an open mind and, and trying to see how it works is so um, lovely. And for me to do this during COVID, you know, just to uh, be worried about everything in the world and then go up to my little writing shed and say, okay, Chekhov, you and me, <laughs> well, let's page eight, let's begin. Um, you know, and then come out four hours later just feeling happy because I had had sort of single pointed focus on something that wasn't full of despair and actually could be solved. And, and uh, you know, my understanding could be improved. That was really, really maybe selfishly, but was really beneficial. George, you use a beautiful analogy in the book, which I think you say is from Buddhism, about a finger pointing to the moon, finger pointing at the moon maybe. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, what, what you were talking about there? Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm out of my element to, to use Buddhism, but I, I, what I understand that to mean is that, you know, we, if you're interested in spiritual practice, you read all the books and you go to the teachings and you memorize the aphorisms and that's all good, but it's not, that in itself is not the thing. All of that stuff is supposed to uh, help you get into a state, a, a state of, you know, increased enlightenment. And if you are someone who just reads the books and thinks, I did it, then you're misled. So likewise, with writing advice, you know, how-to books, I think they're always going to be inadequate because the task is to, the task is to go out by yourself into unknown territory with every story and survive by your wits, you know, so no one else can help you. It's like the Hunger Games, you know, they, you could, they can stand on the side, but they can't really help you. Um, so if that's the job, then a how-to book will only get you so far, and a workshop will only get you so far. Um, but as, so as long as we use those things in the right way, you know, these are, these are not, to, to be able to um, uh, reel off craft wisdom, you know, is not the game. That Anybody can do that. You go to writer's conferences and you see everybody saying show don't tell or whatever it is but that to be able to actually do it is a different thing so i kind of just you know say at the beginning of the book let's remember that this book is just that just a finger pointing at the moon uh we're going to try to use it each of you to you know to to become your best self as a writer
And in that analogy, am I right? It's the book that's the moon. Or maybe it's actually the state that you're in when you do your best writing. That would that would be the, what we're going for. And how we get there, God only knows. You know, and, and even people who can, you know, semi reliably get there can't get there all the time. So it's it's a gift. And so we're we're trying to put ourselves in the position to, you know, attain the gift. I guess. So in each of your essays um, that go with each of the seven short stories, you draw on what's in the short story and then you extrapolate some some guiding principles to help um, mm. to, to help your students to understand the point that you're making. So I'd like to talk about some of the principles that you have um, extracted. Let's talk about one of the first ones. Can you tell us about the ruthless efficiency principle, please? Yes, yes. That's a that's a tongue in cheek technical jargon uh, thing I made up. You know, all these things are basically like this. Somebody told me once that when you go to skydive, you know, they give you that little lesson beforehand, and they they really drum it into you because if you have to use the advice, you're going to be in a panic state. So you know, uh, whatever instruction they're giving you, it has to be right there in the front of your head. So these principles are sort of like uh, they're they're not you know they're not a guarantee. They're not rules, but they're they're good guiding principles if you get in trouble. So efficiency to me is built into the story form, as we talked about earlier with the joke. Um, if I give you a five-page story and my tacit assertion is this is going to change your life. I mean, that's the hope anyway. Well, hurry up because five pages isn't very much. Um, so always when I'm writing, my mind is always saying, what's the purpose of this? Now, I mean, again, not you have to not be too literal, but you're always looking for freeloaders, you know, things that don't really need to be there, uh, stuff that got into the story in the building stage that actually turns out to be unnecessary. So the ruthless efficiency principle is just to sort of be a bouncer in your own story and, and say, pardon me, paragraph eight, you've been here for four years, but are you still supposed to be here? And then the paragraph being a good team player should say, you know, you're right, actually. I, I was useful once, but I'm, if you, please observe, if you take me out, uh, the story's cleaner and it's faster. And it, so it's that kind of mindset, which of course can drive you insane if you take it too far. Uh, but I'd say efficiency is kind of built into the form in the same way that in a song, you know, if a song is going to be two minutes, um, every note should have been considered. So you're saying that every word or every, every word, every character, every sentence has to be there for a purpose that not, not there's nothing that's excess that's baggage every word if, if it rains in this story right. then there's a reason why it's raining yes and we can be generous about the reason you know if you get too string, stringent it becomes uh i think that's how you get writer's block but you know what i'll do is sort of look at a let's say that there's a physical description in a story i just sort of lightly lovingly look at it and say is there any more you is there any way you could be more in step with the rest of the story is there anything you want to tell me that might um, raise the level of organization of the story up a little bit. And again, this is all happening quickly at a gut level. Uh, and what we're trying to steer away from is that kind of hollow feeling of randomness in a work of art. And we're trying to steer towards a beautiful bell sound of uh, purposefulness, I guess you'd say. And you know, Chekhov is wonderful at this. If you go into Chekhov and you read one of his stories a couple of times, and then you go back in and look at the descriptive things. They're always poems. They always have a beautiful, very, very subtle way of speaking to the larger issues of the story. Not not too literally. I mean, that's the mark of a a, a bad metaphor is when you go, oh, yeah, okay. 
I see what's being done here. But with Chekhov and with Tolstoy also, there's something that is both a, a beautiful physical detail that convinces you of the reality of the story, reality of the story, and a poem that subtly um, brings in a few extra colors to the abiding metaphor of the story. And that's, I think that's what you're aiming for. But again, I, I think gentleness is, self-gentleness is the, the watchword for writers. All these principles can be buzzkills if you take them too literally and if you think you can enact them in a purely rational way. But it's, I think it's more aspirational. You know, in a relationship, yes, you, sh- you should be always thoughtful. But the better way to say it is you should aspire to be as thoughtful as possible. That might be um, more doable, you know. You don't want to be militant about it. Something else that you talk about, and I, and I should say for people listening, this is not a technical book at all. I don't think there's any tank, technical language in it. As George has explained, the ruthless efficiency principle, I should have explained that that's his principle, the way that he's described it. There's another one that I really liked, um, especially liked, and you've explained that as we are reading, we're all noticing things all the time. And you make the point, especially when something seems to be excessive. So, for example, a digression that seems to add nothing to the story or excess characters that seem to add nothing to the story. And you have said that as we're reading and as we read and as we sort of can't help notice these things, which at the time we're reading them don't seem to be adding to the story, you say that we put these in our things I couldn't help noticing cart and hold on to them as we read. And you, you call it the T-I-C-H-N and, and you, you keep that uh, going through the rest of the book. Can you explain what you mean by that, George? Sure. I think, you know, um, throughout the book, I, I use this idea. Let's, before uh, I hand you my story, in with reference to that story, your mind is just a blank. It, you've got no reaction to it. You haven't read it yet. As soon as you read the first line, uh, you know, many, many neurons are firing and many uh, things are happening in your mind, uh, a great number of which you probably couldn't articulate exactly. Uh, you know, there. so I would say the process of, of being a critic, the process of being a, a writer, revising one's own work is kind of the process of recognizing all the relations to the story that your mind is creating uh, and blessing them you know, allowing them. So, and then, because that's actually what the writer, what you, the writer, have to work with is those impressions you've raised in the reader. So, for example, in The Metamorphosis by Kafka, the first line is something like, you know, Gregor Samsa woke to find he'd been transformed into a giant beetle or whatever. Now, at that point, most readers will go, no, he didn't. You know, something, he said, that's, that's an impossibility. Um, and then there's another little voice that says, okay, Franz, Kafka, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. Now, what are you going to do with it? And then we read ahead. So these are the kind of things I imagine being put into that cart. And, it, and it's myriad what can be put in the cart. It's really just any reaction we have to any features the story has that are um, above and beyond the usual. Those are the things that are going to be cashed in, you could say, in the end of the story. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, as I say in the book, a story that has nothing back there in the cart is, is too bland. Um, but when we, um, for example, early in the scene in a movie, we notice that the, the wife looks at this other, this neighbor husband for just a split second too long. Now, do we 
notice that with a capital N. Maybe not. Maybe we just somewhere in the, you know, in the undercarriage of our mind, we notice it. I would say in a perfect work of art, that's not a random look. There's some reason why she did that. And if later in act two, she confesses her love for him, somewhere down there, there's a, there's a moment of very small satisfaction. So the, the writer's job, I, I would say, is to be aware of what, she's, what he's causing uh, in the reader's mind. And in a perfect story, all of that is going to be taken into account later. That makes it sound so impossible. I don't know how anybody could even do it. <laughs> you mentioned then revising, and that was something I wanted to ask you about. You write in this book about the importance for a writer of revising her work constantly. And you say that writing is intuition plus iteration. Why is revision, or what you call trying to make trying to make better sentences, so important? Well, what I mean, what I've noticed is, um, you know, we any of us can write a first draft. And in my case, if I start with the first draft and then work on it for two years, by the end of that two years, the piece is just better. It's it's more intelligent. It's uh, funnier. It's more efficient. More important things happen. And, and most importantly, it's more respectful of the reader. Because what I've been doing those two years is pretending I'm her, essentially. You know, reading and saying, oh, that's unclear. Or that's kind of a cliche. Or uh, that's a strange twist for the story to take. So by the time I hand it over to you, dear reader, I, I have uh, hopefully taken out all the low-hanging fruit. You know, I've, I've, I've raised it to its highest level. So it's an act of respect for the reader. And from my point of view, it's such a delight because the person, you know, who's indicated in the story as a writer is smarter than me. He's, he's actually smarter than the person talking to you right now because he's me if I had two years to stage manage myself, you know, and, and they're kind of experiment so so that's where revision you know we sometimes think maybe from school we think the revision is correcting mistakes or sometimes we think revision is refuting our earlier vision you know refuting that blissful state we were in the first time we wrote it i think revision is just um uh, the process of showing continual respect for the person who's going to read the work and the process of trying to find in yourself the mm, the I don't know what you would say that I was going to say the best person. I'm not sure that's right, but, but you're trying to find the most interesting person within yourself. So in this sense, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to revise. And, and also it's, I think the best antidote to writer's block. You know, if you think that your first draft has to be gold, good luck. You know, you, I mean, that's a, that's a breakdown waiting to happen. But if you, if you, as I know, I, I don't care what I write the first time because I'm going to be spending several years making it better. um, Then you've, it's not so hard. It's, you know, and, and you're in a continual relation with the different voices within yourself to try to find the ones that are the most um, uh, winning, I guess, or intelligent. George, could you tell us a bit about the importance of escalation in a story? Well, I think for the same, you know, it's related to efficiency. If you, if you have, uh, if I say once upon a time, you're already waiting for something to happen. So if I, you know, if I say once upon a time, there was a dog was sitting in the park and he was kept sitting there. And then a while later, we find that he's still sitting there. And, you know, at some point, the the reader's impatience starts to really, really uh, vibrate. So I think built into the story form is is this what they call Freitag's triangle, which is it's usually like this. Then there's a change and the change builds to a, a, a new set, of, a new stasis, basically. So I think it's just kind of in the, you know, if I said, if I called you and said, Nicole, you won't believe what happened to me today. 
And then I said, uh, basically nothing, you know, and then nothing and then nothing. At some point you're ready to hang up the phone. So I think it's built into the form. And then the question is, okay, what does escalation look like? And for a writer, especially what does escalation look like for you? What's your particular form of escalating things? And what I found is if you look at a, a narrative with the idea that escalation is desirable, you'll find that anytime you repeat, now here I'll be a little technical, you repeat a beat, you know, you repeat a, a state of affairs, that's, you could perceive that as a failure of escalation. And it's amazing how stories are full of so many chances for variation. You know, so escalation is essentially variation. Um, and so again, it's not a, a law, but but it's something you, we want to incline toward. So what I'm doing in revision is just looking to see, have I repeated the same beat here? Uh, if I'm describing a character on one page and I'm describing her three pages later, if that's the same description, that's a failure of escalation. If I can just vary the description, that often will connote a psychological development. And then you've got a, one more degree of escalation in the story. So it's actually a kind of an exciting way to uh, to think of setting the table so that it, it makes the, a, a, a more uh, dazzling surface, maybe. And this this concept of escalation, it's in service to what you say is one of the main aims of your writing, which is to make, well, I suppose it's the main aim of any writer, to make the reader keep reading, to make them want to turn the page. Yes. Yes, and for me, that was a big breakthrough because I think before this, I thought the, the idea was to enlighten you and to be smarter than you and to show that I had been to Sumatra and you hadn't or something like that. Uh, when you, for me to say very simply, wait a minute, you're not going to get any of that unless she keeps turning the page. And then that kind of simplifies it down to, okay, so why do we? You know, when I, we're in a bookstore and we pick up the new bestseller and we re start reading, how are we making that decision? On what basis? You know, and it's really, it's complicated. I, I mean, I think there's one level, and I, I, we do some work on this at Syracuse, in which um, the actual phrase-by-phrase -phrase quality of the prose can be compelling or kind of repulsive. You know, it can either push you out or pull you in. Uh, that's interesting. Um, I think uh, squeezing the um, the waste out of a sentence is often a way to, to make it more compelling, but, you know, um, but I think for what I try to get my students to do is we do an exercise where I, I hand out five opening paragraphs from five unknown stories that are in small magazines. And then I say to them, um, okay, I'm going to step out, but you rank these stories while I'm gone. I'll be right back. And I go out and I'd actually just stand in the hall. <laughs> but the, the idea is that I haven't told them on what basis to rank the stories, but because they're these type A geniuses, I come back in and they're all feverishly ranking and then we put them on the board. Almost never do two people rank them the same way and they're all on fire to defend their their choices. And that's where the fun starts. Then you say, okay, why why is that the best one? Why is that the worst one? And they say, first they'll say, well, just because it's better. No, no, no. When did you check out of that story? You know, when did you decide it was going to be number four or five or conversely, when did you put that one at the top? And if you push them, you can often get it down to an individual phrase where they started to doubt the writer or started to resent the writer. I had one kid who was really irate because the, the writer described too many flowers, and that was apparently a, a, a deal breaker, you know. But the, the point of the exercise is to emphasize to them that as language gurus, they have incredibly strong preferences at that level, and that's actually their stock and trade is to uh, – 
maybe not, well, to identify and then bless their own indefensible uh, preferences about language. That's actually how one becomes a poet. Uh, so this exercise is a good way of isolating that and saying, well, you know, you took five pieces of prose and rank them and would fight to the death for them. That's what you're going to use in your own work. It shines a light on their preferences. And that's a really wonderful thing to see. One of the stories that you've included in this collection is The Nose by Gogol. And just in brief, not to give away too much of the story, one man wakes up and finds a nose in a loaf of bread that his wife has baked. Meanwhile, another man wakes up to find that his nose is missing. And then one day he sees it in the street, all dressed up, and he goes and has a conversation with it. The title of your essay on that story is The Door to the Truth Might Be Strangeness. And in that essay, you make the point that a story can be truthful even if things happen in it that are implausible, that couldn't possibly happen in reality. What is it that makes a story truthful? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think for me, it's when, you know, there's that moment in a story when suddenly it's it's speaking directly to what you're most worried about. You know, it, it, it jumps the, the moat in a certain way. And it's, you know, one moment it's a story about an imaginary person and you're reading it in your living room. And then suddenly the writer has you by the throat saying, I know you're worried about this, you know. Uh, and in that moment, we, we're in the face of truth where this, the writer has said, I don't really care about fictional conventions. I don't care about realism. I want to not waste the six pages. I, w- I want to, I want us together to talk about the stuff that really is important. So for example, in A Christmas Carol, you know, when the ghosts arrive, it, we might we might be a little skeptical, and then as soon as we see what they're doing, it it's so um, you know we feel it. It's critical to ourselves. We all wonder about are, are we good people? Uh, are are we? Could we be transformed into better people? If so, how? And suddenly Dickens has jumped the mode and saying, "I'm going to talk to you about that directly." So I think sometimes, and I, I would argue, I'm somebody who would argue that in this life, the, the truest stories are the ones that break. The rules of realism because realism is kind of a fraud in a certain way i mean um you know we're having this talk you're in australia i'm in new york you could describe it that way that's realism but actually i'm in a room full of thousands of objects and so are you and there are people moving around upstairs and you know there's our past and there's so much going on that we that isn't reducible to, to simple realism so gogol i think is someone who recognized through his great genius that to tell the real truth about especially I think about human relations and why they go funky. Um, he had a great instinct for starting with a kind of goofy story you could almost dismiss like the nose. And suddenly, at least in my reading, he's talking about the question of miscommunication. You know, how is it that human beings with such nice intentions, all of us pretty good hearted, get into such terrible messes? And, and he suggests, I think, as I say in the essay, that there's something about the way we communicate in every moment uh, that is messed up. And I, I would say he had a very Buddhist view of life, which is that you're over there with your thoughts and your cartoon bubble over your head, and I'm over here with mine. And the contents of our minds are so strong. They're creating a solution of a reality with us at this, with me at the center of it and you at the center of yours, that it almost makes it uh, very, very dangerous for us to interact because we're we're not even sharing the same worldview, you know. So I mean, but of course, Gold does in a way that's so funny and so crazy. Um, but I think he tells truths that Chekhov and Tolstoy don't get to, actually, you know, and, and vice versa. 
I was gonna, I sometimes think, I mean, I'm making a, a, this is making it more intellectual. I need to, but I think about that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, when, um, the, the king rides through the field and the peasants are talking about the king. And the one peasant says, uh, he has a king. And he says, how do you know he's a king? And he says, no, he doesn't have any shit on him. That's a place where, you know, the truth is gotten at by strangeness. That's, that's a whole history of, of Europe in four silly lines. George, I want to ask you about something that you've said about language and the importance of precision. You've said specificity, precision, and brevity applied in language drive us towards compassion. I thought that was a really, really interesting observation, and I'm wondering if you could explain why you say that. Yes, here's what I mean is um, if, okay, if I have an enemy, say, uh, uh, someone who I don't like or I don't care, I don't care to think about, and then you ask me to describe that person, um, I, I'll probably start by saying, you know, he's, he's a jerk or he's not worth thinking about. Or I'll, I'll put another category in there. He's a Republican. He's a Democrat. He's a, you know, Protestant or whatever. Um, then if we say, okay, tell me more. Mm, okay, well, he's, a, he's a, a Republican who has a model train set in his basement. Huh, interesting. Why do you think he does that? Well, because he's lonely. You know, his, his wife doesn't love him. She's having an affair with the guy down the street, and so he goes down with this little railroad cap on it. Suddenly, the more you tell me, the more he comes into full dimensionality. And I contend that once that happens, it's harder to hate him. So our, our contemporary, maybe our human desire to categorize people, it has the goal of keeping them at bay so then we can then disdain them. But what fiction teaches us is that in the, with the intention of making better sentences, we are forced to specificity. When we're forced to specificity, judgment falls away somehow. The guy with the model railroad set in his basement who's lonely, oh, I don't hate him. I, I want to know even more about him, you know. Uh, and suddenly I, I'm not necessarily for him or against him. I'm just seeing him with, with more dimensionality. So that's why I think, that, you know, I didn't realize this until recently, but when I'm working on a story, I'm always trying to be more specific. And the more specific I am, the less facile judgment is present. And this is also true, by the way, when we're critiquing stories. Um, you know, often uh, a, a student will say, oh, this story is boring, or this story even is misogynistic, or this story is uh, this or that. If you, can, if you can force their attention to individual lines within the story, their advice becomes more specific and less judgmental. You know, um, you, can, you can name the line where a story becomes misogynistic. That to me feels like really useful work, and it's work that is. I feel like it's loving-hearted because you're you're trying to move everybody past judgment, uh, past too easy judgment, and into a more workable place. Uh, and it sounds kind of like a maybe kind of grand, but I've I've experienced it writing. You know that you um, you're really trying to 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 tell the truth through language, and in doing that, you will find. Uh, hatred harder to sustain you know and, and also you'll find facile sentimental love harder to sustain you you know Chekhov is the master of this you you come out of his stories feeling multiply towards a person much like you would if you knew someone for 50 or 60 years you know you you, you see the whole of them and you and you're okay with it one story in this collection gooseberries by Chekhov holds a special place in your heart 
Could you tell us why that is? Yes, that, that's the middle story in this uh, Chekhov trilogy called The Little Trilogy. So the first one is called The Man in the Case, and then Gooseberries, and then there's one called About Love. Um, you know, when I when I heard Toby read it, it was really interesting because it was so funny and moving and engaging for the audience. And I'd been playing a lot of music at that time, so I knew the feeling of an audience that was fully there. You know, And it was kind of astonishing how there this audience was. Uh, and at the same time, I didn't really understand why. I, I was I was feeling the same thing, but the story is weird. It's, it's not much happens in it. Uh, it's funny, but it's very. Um, in some ways, it seems to break some of the rules we've been talking about. There's a big digression in the middle of it, and there's no nobody gets killed. Nobody. There's no kiss. There's no fighting. Nothing. It's just these old men talking, basically. But it was so powerful. So I think that made me really curious. Why did I feel so much in this story that? Um, you know, at that time I was a big Hemingway fan and mostly for the drama of the Hemingway, you know, the travel, but also the drama, the kind of manly, you know, fighting and, and tension. This story had none of that. Um, so, I mean, it's in, a, in a way, I've been studying that story all these years to try to figure out what it was that, that compelled me. And um, I'd say I'm still trying. I mean, that, that story is a, it's a puzzle. It's a beautiful puzzle. But in the essay, what I say is that it um, essentially, you know, when I was younger, I think many of us have the idea that a story is supposed to solve a problem for us, sets up a problem and solves it. But what Chekhov said is uh, art doesn't have to solve a problem. It just has to formulate it correctly. Mm -hmm. So in this story, he kind of says very sweetly, what do we think about happiness? Is You know, what do we think about it? And uh, he, there's a really compelling case for happiness being kind of decadent. You know, those of us who are happy are it's like you're the turtle, you know, we're standing on someone else's shoulder, pushing them down into the mud. Or when we're happy, we think we've earned it. We think that virtue made us happy. Um, and the character says that's nonsense. You know, we, we shouldn't even try to be happy. We should always be living for others. And so that's true. I, that's kind of a profound truth. Well, then the story conspires to also prove the exact opposite, which is that happiness is sacred and we, is absolutely what God wants for us and what we want, should have. And then, you know, having proven two contradictory principles, <laughs> Chekhov just adjusts his monocle and smiles and quietly walks away, leaving us, I think, um, just deep, more deeply engaged in the question. We don't really have an answer. And in fact, what the story said is, yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Good, good thing to think about. And then that's the end. So that's a real high, high wire act. And it shows such... Uh, to me, such moral maturity for someone to be able to say, here's the truth, on the other hand, and then still smiling, leave the room. That's the mark of a great soul. Yeah, you make the point that, um, as you've just said, that Chekhov presents both sides of the argument. So the character who talks about how it's really wrong to actively seek happiness is the character who, a few pages earlier, has had the swim in the pond in the rain that gives the, the book its title. <laughs> and you said that, as as you've just said, that, What's really clever is that Chekhov leaves it to the reader to decide. Chekhov presents both sides of the story. Here's this character that's saying, on the one hand, it's morally wrong to actively seek happiness. On the other hand, we've seen him a few pages before just delighting in swimming in a, a pond in the rain. You argue that this is the correct approach, that fiction is not the place for a writer to air her own views because you say fiction does not support polemic very well. Why not? Could you talk a little bit about why, why that is? Well, I think it's just too easy. You know, if I, if I write, because the story is all made up of assertions by me. So if I, if I write a story to prove that rabbits are evil, 
you know, and I, and I fill it with a bunch of diabolical rabbits, it doesn't prove anything about rabbits. Now, it can be meaningful as a trope, but, you know, so therefore a story, I would say, only can really mean by its internal dynamics. So it, it, it doesn't, um, I, I'm welcome to put my belief about immigration or whatever or, you know, dragons into, into my story. But I think this, for some reason the story form then wants pushback. You know, in other words, in my story where, let's say my main character is a real anti-rabbit guy and he really hates rabbits. Okay, you can have that. Um, because we know that his idea is wrong, you know, rabbits are just rabbits, we want somebody in the story to challenge him. And that's when it becomes a story. Before that, it's just a speech. And a speech can be right or wrong. But I think the story form always, I don't know why exactly, to be honest, but it, it the story always wants to be complicated. It wants to, it wants us to, to, complicated in the telling another way of saying that is if we assert something in a story that seems rickety the story form wants us to acknowledge that it's rickety uh this might relate a little bit to that um earlier principle if if i say if i have a let's say for example i have a, a person in a story who is um uh a misogynist let's say i have that in a story called the barber's unhappiness he's he, we've got his inner monologue and he's really a, a biased guy uh he's, he's an anti-woman person is that allowed in a story sure but but the reader reading that senses that there's something wrong with this guy and wants the story to know it too you know and so then the story's principle or the story's um power comes out of the extent to which it is going to contradict and complicate that guy's erroneous view you know so i i, I think Chekhov is is great as now not every story has to work that way i don't think now, there's so many ways that a story can work, but I think Chekhov is, uh, has been so influential in the form, and I think that's because he's responding directly to what the form wants. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, it's, a, it's a difficult one. You talk at the end of the book um, about what it is that fiction does for us and why, why it's important, why it matters, and you say that we need to keep our expectations low. Or, or humble, I think you say, and not over-glorify what it is that fiction does. Mm -hmm. You've said that in, in your opinion, when you boil it down, what, what fiction does is cause an incremental change in the state of the reader's mind for a short time. How does it do that? How are we altered by a piece of fiction that we've just read? Well, I mean, the, the, the best answer is... Uh, depends, you know, in other words, we, we, any of us who love reading, we know, we, you know, we, we've had it happen to us. And in a certain way, if I was a more disciplined person, I would say that's, I stopped there because, you know, but uh, for me, it, it's, um, the one thing I've noticed reliably is I read a good piece of fiction. When I come out of it, everything is more interesting. You know, the, the, the world is just full of, uh, interesting questions all of a sudden, uh, things visually are more interesting The you know, you, you go into the town and you think, oh, you know, Anna Karenin could have lived here, or, you know. Um, and so I think there's a, 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 and also a slight sense of being reminded that you're not the only person in the world, you know, that, that actually, oh, you're, um, your belief that you're the center of the narrative is actually not true because you just were out of that perspective for some number of pages. Um, so those things I think are all really good and they're, but also they're very temporary. They don't abide, you know, they don't, um, the, the one thing that might, last a little longer i think is that uh archetypes get formed you know so for example um in the, the first story in the book is called in the cart and there's a woman 
uh, who's very, she's a lonely school teacher out in the middle of nowhere. And I, I never have never forgotten her. Uh, when I, whenever I meet somebody who strikes me as lonely or maybe a little bit off kilter, I always think of that woman, you know, and we spend seven or eight pages inside her head and I feel so much sympathy for her. So that character and a number of others I've encountered in my reading life have, have gotten into me as archetypal figures. Uh, and when I, um, go to discount them, which is maybe, you know, a natural human thing, a little voice says, Oh, remember her, you know, remember the woman in, in the cart or, you know, in, um, Gold's great story, the overcoat, there's a kind of a very nebbishy little clerk, you know, who's afraid of everything. And he's, uh, and I, I, that's another little person who's in my head. And whenever I see somebody that seems meek or timid or, uh, and I, and I look past them, I, I kind of remember Akaki Akakievich and go, oh yeah, there's, I, I actually know you, you know, even, even though I don't know you, I know your, your great grandfather. <laughs> so I think that, that can, that effect can last. You said that one of the times that really made you realize you wanted to be a writer was when a, a teacher talked to you about the writer Hawthorne. And what she said about him really appealed to you. I'm, I'm quoting something that you said. You said, the idea that our love of the world could get put into permanent form and then get shared with future generations. And it seemed to me that writing would be a way of forcing you to live a big life. Has writing forced or enabled you to live a big life? Bigger, certainly, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, I got to come to Australia because I was a, a writer. Uh, but I think the, um, you know, it, it makes it, it makes it an examined life because you, every day you're, uh, you're claiming that you're going to tell a story about the world that will be relevant to other people. So I think you have to constantly uh, reimagine your relation to the world. And as you get older, you know, you're, uh, I, I'm aware that you're, we become more heavily invested in our models of the world. And it's always good to strip those down and throw them away and start over. So I think in that way, writing is, uh, it's a privilege because mostly I think, you know, we, we want to be on autopilot a little bit. You know, we want, especially as I mean, 62, you kind of want to think that you know what's going on because it's getting scary at this point. You know, things are not only the situation in the world, but getting older is weird. And, uh, you know, that's sort of, you're actually starting to believe that you might die someday, even you, God forbid. Um, so, so you, I think we start to want solidity. You know, we want to, well, okay, uh, these things will happen to me, but at least I know these truths about the world. Um, but those truths are, uh, to some extent, dangerous if we, if we hold them too rigidly, uh, mainly because any truths that we can come up with as human beings are going to be disproven. We are, our truth-making capacity is quite limited by our, you know, our physiology and our neurology. So writing for me is a way, a very small way, granted, but it's a way of, of every day taking all of the constructed concepts and whittling away at them a bit and saying, well, maybe not. On the other hand, uh, what if it's otherwise? Um, that to me is a real lifesaver, you know, to be able to um, recognize that, that you are a system of constructed partial knowledge and when you go to tell a story, you'll find that out very quickly because that's where you start having to rewrite things. <laughs> you know, when your 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 constructed partial knowledge comes out on the page, and you go, "Oh God, that's not quite it." <laughs> George, thank you so much for talking to me about this beautiful book. 
a swim in a pond in the rain, which, as I say, really does feel, I, I really feel like I've attended a masterclass, a one-on-one masterclass with you about those seven short stories and um, what a wonderful, wonderful experience that was. So thank you for talking to me. Thank you for writing that book and um, all the best with everything. Well, thank you, Nicole. Such a pleasure. I, I, I love talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberley.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.